Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome everyone to a special edition of our Benefits Executive Roundtable podcast series. This interview is being released in two versions. The original version is for use by my own company and podcast series at Advanced Benefit Consulting. There is also a second version which I have created for use by the California Association of Health Underwriters to share with their members and their clients. This is the original ABC version of this podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Dorothy Koshu, and I'm here today with Faith Borges and Jim Morrison from CAHU. Uh, Faith is from Cal Advocates, and she's our legislative advocate for the California Association of Health Underwriters. Jim Morrison is the vice president of legislation for CAHU. So thank you very much for being here. Welcome. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Oh, you're welcome. So today I'm doing a very special um, edition of my podcast because I've invited Kahu to be a part of this, and this is going to be offered to all Kahu agents so that they can share this podcast if they choose to do so with their employer clients. So I'm going to ask you guys to help us out a little bit first by telling us, for those who might not be familiar, Kahu is the state chapter of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Can you give us first a brief overview of Kahu's legislative and consumer education efforts here in California? Absolutely. So Kahu uh, basically's legislative side reviews over 2,600 bills that are introduced typically on an annual basis. We narrow those down to the focus of our clients and our um, agent members and focus on those bills. And then at the end of the day, this past year, we tracked about 101 bills, took positions on 22, and basically legislate or go to the legislators and advocate for uh, why we would support or oppose certain bills. It's great to have representation, too, at the local level where um, things might change in terms of access or certain issues, particularly um, urban environments will differ very much from those in rural areas. So having that local level is great. And then, as Jen mentioned, California is such a huge state as opposed to other states that operate with part-time legislatures or meeting every other year. Um, with the number of bills that we have here, it's great to make sure that our consumers have a voice. And I'm located just across the street from the Capitol, so spend quite a bit of time running back and forth. So having that dedicated presence that can be there as things emerge, as uh, legislation has gotten amended and we need testimony before the legislature or a meeting um, in an office or with a department, it's great to have that yeah. presence. Yeah, it really is. And we appreciate you both, by the way. And we do appreciate your being running around because I know the last uh, couple of weeks of the session were pretty chaotic for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's for those listening, let's just kind of explain to them a little bit about the last days of the legislative session uh, and the deadline, I believe it's October 13th, when the governor either signs the bills or lets them fail. And there's a lot on the line for California right now. So let's discuss what we know and maybe some educated guesses on what we might see. Sure. So out of those 2,600 bills that are initially introduced, they usually lead down to about 1,000 that make it to the governor. Um, The bills will die or change form through the committee process, both at the policy level and at the fiscal level, as the legislature looks at what resources are available. Healthcare is certainly something that's very expensive, and though ideally we'd be able to fund everything, it competes with other interests, and particularly because California has to have a balanced budget, which is in contrast to the federal government that can definitely deficit spend so you can really um, accumulate a list of wants at the federal level versus um, 
at the state level, you need to be a little more reserved. That said, the legislature usually begins the beginning of January, and they have uh, through September to complete their legislative business. But I always joke that the legislature is a bit like a high school in terms mm-hmm. that they all procrastinate until the very end. Right. So right. even though there's hearings going on for months and months, and there's you know a little bit of debate earlier on, um, usually the budget takes over the majority of the summertime. And then by the time we get to the last two weeks of session, legislators are usually considering, you know, seven to 800 bills um, in just a few days time. So the result of that is working into the wee hours of the morning. I believe the final session concluded around three in the morning uh, in the early hours of Saturday, right up until the deadline. So um, it does make things a little chaotic, and uh, this year's event certainly added to that on the Senate floor, uh, which I'll leave folks to Google if they're interested, um, but it, it, it is very exciting. Yeah, very exciting. So let's talk about some of the most um, important bills. We do know that one was signed, and that was AB5, the Independent Contractors Bill, and obviously some like it, some hate it, but would you care to just give us a little bit of your comments on that bill? Sure. So the Assembly Bill 5 bill that was signed into law, also known as the Dynamics Ruling uh, Bill, basically addresses who can be considered an independent contractor versus a W-2 employee. So it all stems from a Supreme Court ruling on Dynamics Trucking Company. And so the people that like it are the people that uh, are basically supportive of the concept of employee benefits, um, or the benefits of being an employee, meaning work break, sick break, all the different things that go along with that. However, there's a large part of the segment that really wants to be an independent, uh, non-W-2 employee for several different reasons, whether they're part of a gig economy or maybe that, you know, like the insurance industry specifically, uh, we are, as the Asian community designed to provide unbiased individual uh, information and uh, detail for the client so they can you know, make an educated decision. If we had to be reclassified as employees, we would all be employees of the insurance companies that we operate with. Mm-hmm. And that isn't necessarily in the client's best interest. It's complicated, it's cumbersome, uh, et cetera. So that's, that's kind of a big picture overview. I don't know okay. if Faith has anything to add on to that particular I think it's an important observation that this all stemmed from a Supreme Court ruling here in California. So last summer, it became law. Whether or not you like Dynamex, the court was looking at a case that applied to a transportation company and some candidly fairly egregious practices that were happening with misclassification. But the impact was applied broadly to all independent contractors and W-2 employees of the state. And so there was kind of a last-minute panic last year because... Obviously, every industry didn't have the opportunity to present their unique arguments on classification before the court, but this um, was going to apply to them. And so I think the legislature did declare at the end of last session that as opposed to just rushing something through at the very end, that they were going to tackle it this year, specifically just through AB5 as one vehicle, as opposed to um, running a lot of different bills dealing with the same issue. And I think as we um, wrapped things up towards the end of this session, the folks that didn't have exemptions, as you know, Jen mentioned, um, some of the gig economy workers, folks in the transportation industry, there um, was an ongoing dialogue and commitment that this isn't going to be the end. But because Dynamax is the law right now because of that court ruling, 
there are a number of industries that need the exemption right now. And so that's what it's attempting to do. Um, I know the Newsom administration and others have said this is not going to be the last of the issue. Um, you know, seeing last minute amendments and gut amended bills that include exemptions for folks like the newspaper industry, there's clearly an ongoing need for additional clarification. I think we'll see some additional action in the courts as well as they seek to clarify whether or not um, this is applied retroactively or whether or not it's only prospectively or if there needs to be a different um, test used for things like workers' compensation insurance because Dynamex specifically applied to wage and hour instances that you can't separate someone into right. an employee specifically for wage and hour and not consider um, the other benefits that employers provide, such as workers' compensation, health benefits, et cetera. So I think the dialogue on those issues is going to be ongoing as this wraps up um, into a new standard. And some industries obviously are going to benefit from this greatly, and some industries are going to suffer. Can you just very briefly give us a couple of examples on the types of industries that will suffer the most from this from this type of legislation? Well, it's hard to say because they some are more obvious. I think some that have a business model, like Faith mentioned, the independent newspaper right. delivery, mm -hmm. people that did get a last-minute exemption. I think when it comes down to things that we haven't really thought about or haven't come to the surface, but I can imagine delivery services that are independent of an Amazon or online delivery companies that use these third parties, it's very difficult to pass the B part of the ABC right, test. Right. Uh, some exemptions that have been granted are, you know, hairdressers, financial services, uh, legal uh, area of law, I should say, um, insurance professionals. So I think over time, more and more will probably come to the surface, and then there will be more requests for exemptions for various arguments or various reasons. So do you think something like a ballot issue that companies like Uber and Lyft are discussing, um, do you think that's going to have any impact on this? Do you think that's they're going to have any success on getting something like that through the ballot or any type of organizations like that and, and co-ops and, and so forth? I mean, they've committed $90 million, I think 30 coming from Uber, and then Lyft and DoorDash, respectfully, I believe, are the, the large players. And I think really those gig companies have become a part of our everyday lives. So most people want there to um, you know, remain affordable options for transportation. Um, and that's whether you live in an urban area or um, like I took an Uber all the way out here. Um, from the airport, I think that that will definitely continue at the ballot initiative level. Um, but sometimes what ballot initiatives do, just because you're um, – qualifying them and circulating signatures and you, you know, filed uh, statements with your intent for a ballot initiative, sometimes it provides greater leverage for the legislature to act because the legislature doesn't like to see um, things enacted via a ballot proposition because they don't have the authority to regulate them. Mm -hmm. Once something is passed by the voters, um, like Prop 13, you can't touch it unless it goes back to the voters. And so it's very expensive to qualify a measure twice. I think the financial estimates are something like $7 million just to wow. obtain the signatures <laughs> um, necessary to qualify a ballot initiative. And so the presence of this, you know, looming over the ballot might be something that forces the legislature to act next session. Yes. Well, I, I do know, and a lot of us are aware, that Kahu was involved um, in this uh, Dynamex case and, and this situation. Can you tell us a little bit about the successes on the Kahu side and how you guys were involved in getting the agents, um, helping us, you know, as an association and helping us help our employer clients? Absolutely. So I think we were uniquely positioned because there is already great um, sensitivity to the cost of healthcare. And if you're talking about adding thousands of people 
onto, you know, W-2 payroll, um, that certainly adds to the cost of healthcare. And then further, I think there really just is a logistics issue. You know, in some instances, like the trucking company Dynamex that was considered, um, who only drive for one company, the answer can be a little more clear when you're looking at a policy matter. But for our agents that, you know, represent hundreds of um, consumers that, you know, enroll in Jim, I think you said you'd have something like over 100 W-2s because who would you be an employee of? Right. You know, um, we sell all plans and, you know, um, government programs and just your private health insurance. So just logistically, it became too much of a challenge where agents are already independently licensed and regulated by um, the Department of Insurance. They carry their own errors and emissions coverage. They can, they participate in continuing education so that they can um, stay up to date on all of the laws that are constantly changing. Right. So I think there was kind of a recognition that this industry is unique. So we were able to engage um, with the author's office, with the administration, with departments, and um, we partnered with our um, other agent affiliates over at IIAB Cal and NAFA to make sure we were kind of speaking in step um, as a unified voice versus trying to get, you know, three exemptions, you know, for life insurance brokers or health insurance, really kind of streamlining that with the understanding that that's what's going to be best for the consumers that we serve is to have an agent that's independent and um, that can take a look at their the consumer's needs and to specifically tailor um, the best options for them as opposed to, you know, having no options to present them with. Um, and I'm not sure if Jen has a Yeah, no, I, was, I agree. I think the unbiased right. uh, advice was a really key component to our argument. Obviously, the independent component cost was a very sensitive issue as well. And all right. those making W all agents W2 employees would just add to the cost, would not be in the consumer's best interest. And that seemed to resonate with the And it adds cost without adding any value, right? right. Which right. there's right. enormous sensitivity to. So as a whole, just unifying and working uh, with folks across the street. Well on behalf of all of us that are members, I thank Kahu for your ac- actions on this and your activities and I know you work really hard to make sure that uh, this Ultimately, what this does is help the consumer and, and employer clients and so forth, and that's what we're and that's what we're all about. There are a lot of other bills that we're waiting on uh, that the governor is likely to sign, um, particularly surprise billing bills. What are your thoughts on these, and, and how will they help consumers? In brief, so the only surprise billing bill that actually made it through to enrollment is the surprise billing related to air ambulance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're confident that that will probably be signed into law. It is uh, very logical from the standpoint of most people that are utilizing the air ambulance services are not someone that's in a position to ask questions or make decisions. It's typically facilitated by a third party, and obviously there's some sort of serious medical issue for them. So that's, we think, helpful. Some of the other bills that were related um, were on anesthesia. Another one was on emergency room services, et cetera. Unfortunately, those did not move forward, Okay. but we are likely to see versions of those in the future. So though our agent listeners are are very familiar with the concept of balance billing, uh, for those of you who are tuning in um, and find that to be a foreign concept, if you go to a hospital and, you know, it's it's in your network, you think you've done everything right and you get this mystery bill um, for a provider that was out of network that you, you know, didn't didn't know about or an air ambulance service, you don't know when you call 911 and someone decides, you know, we need to send this person um, air support, whether or not that person is in network or out of network. The practice of balance billing is when you get that additional bill um, that is something that the insurance company isn't covering because the provider's out of the network and it's oftentimes a surprise. So you right. will hear it referred to also as surprise billing. Um, and I think that that's an issue um, that people are very sensitive to, certainly as you talk about the cost of care 
there has been some stabilization in terms of, you know, premiums this year, but it's really those surprise bills that, um, that shock people the most you weren't expecting on, you know, falling down the stairs or um, a skiing accident, something of that nature. So we're working very hard to make sure that there aren't surprises for our consumers and taking the consumer out of the middle of an argument that really should be between the providers um, and the plans, nothing that um, a consumer shouldn't be used as leverage to, to get, you know, a provider rate that they're well, and everyone's concerned about cost. Uh, mm-hmm. Non-contractor providers typically are very, very, very expensive, and that adds cost to the system, which obviously reflects in premium. So yeah. if we can get them to the table to come up with a reasonable compromise, then I think we'll see costs uh, be impacted as well. Right, yeah. for both the consumer and the employer. And the employer, yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there other bills that are expected to be signed that will affect consumers and employers? The extension of uh, the individual open enrollment is mm-hmm. likely to be signed. I know that that is being planned as if that's going to occur. Uh, so that's one. There is a prescription drug bill uh, referred to as the pay to delay or Assembly Bill 824. That's likely to be signed. Uh, that would potentially um, uh, impact prescription costs in a positive way, mm-hmm. uh, make generics more readily available. So those are the major ones. Keep in mind, we've already had some serious movement where we have the reintroduction of an individual mandate already signed into law. We have the expansion of Medi-Cal to age 26 for undocumented already signed into law. And then you have the expansion of uh, subsidies up to 600% of federal poverty poverty level versus 400% already signed into law. So kind of an interesting year. We had so many movement, so much movement on the budget side Mm -hmm. of legislation than we did on the true legislative side. Don't get me wrong, there's a number of bills, but the remaining bills are not of major significance. I don't want to downplay them, but some of the big ones have already happened. Right. And then, of course, AB5 has already been signed, which is a fairly relevant bill. So the rest of them, we're just kind of waiting to see. We have another week or so, and then we should know more. Right. So we'll have to stay tuned. Several bills died in this session. Are there any of them that you think will uh, very that are very important that will probably resurface next legislative session that would affect you know, uh, agents in the association as well as their employer clients and consumers? I think we're back to the emergency or uh, surprise billing element. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had, as I mentioned, the emergency room, anesthesiologists, some other areas. California has taken a different approach. We're not trying to solve it with one piece of legislation. They're doing it by piecemeal. So I can see those being reintroduced or the concept come back as we kind of fill all these holes as they're identified. Ground ambulance is another one that uh, we run into, I could see some legislation potentially coming back on uh, that particular issue. Um, I would also add, I think um, we'll see greater emphasis on a public option um, coming up. For those of you that were present at our conference, uh, we witnessed um, a presentation just a little bit ago about the, the polling that a lot of folks are wanting to um, have some additional access. The chair of the Assembly Health Committee, um, Dr. Wood, represents a very rural community um, with very few coverage options. That's much less so the case in urban areas, but I think there is appetite for greater um, choice of options uh, for folks to look at. And so I think that that's going to be presented in the next uh, few legislative cycles. I think we'll also try to see um, some cost containment related bills. Prescription drug costs are obviously a major issue, whether it's through the buying cooperative through the state of California or other um, bills to identify areas of excess mm-hmm. uh, in the cost structure of pharmaceuticals could likely come back since that's a hot button issue both on the state and federal level. So we're likely to see 
uh, something in that, in that area as well. Okay, great. Um, as you know, I like to write. I'm always writing articles, but um, this podcast series I'm hoping will allow people that don't always have time to read to maybe listen to mm -hmm. these types of things in their car mm -hmm. or you know, share them with their clients in their offices and things like that. So I'm hoping this will reach more people than what maybe we might see that are actually looking at things and writing. So I, I do appreciate this. To close this out, because I know you guys have to get, get on, on the road here and get going, um, can you tell me how Kahu keeps its members up to date on these types of important legislative issues and why employers should use agents that are members of associations like Kahu, particularly Kahu? Maybe I'll tackle the first part of that just because I think I'm a big part of how you get your information. Yes, you are. Um, as I mentioned, um, my office is directly across the street and I spend uh, every morning with three cups of coffee reading every uh, piece of legislation that was amended in any form that's introduced. And I work very closely uh, with Jim. I think my email auto-populates uh, to your <laughs> email to, to see how it's going to um, impact uh, both the agent community and the consumers that they serve in terms of making sure that we are addressing issues of access and affordability and quality of care. Um, this is a big cost for folks that do business um, in the state of California and, and really anywhere. And we want to make sure that we are um, bringing integrity into the system and, and that folks are able to, to use it. So every single week, our legislative council, which is made up of 13 members, um, there's chapters all across the state. So again, you get that perspective from LA, but you also get the perspective from the North State and the desert on what issues people are going through. And we vote to position on bills as a whole. And then um, depending on uh, the level of priority that the, the committee decides to give a bill, you know, we spend time writing letters, advocating face-to-face -face before the legislature in you know, meetings with their office and staff going to committee and testifying on bills and making sure that the perspective is shared there. We submit letters uh, for the record. We engage in the regulatory process when, you know, Cover California wants to create new um, rules around how people receive their information or quality controls, things of that nature that we're engaging in providing comments. Uh, before the board, we have a lot of relationships with folks um, all across the industry. So we're constantly communicating with the health plans, with the medical providers themselves, with other consumer advocate groups, with other agent groups, business groups um, like the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, we sit on their employer coalition and making sure that we're um, raising issues where we see that they might be present in some of these proposals because there are a lot of them. But we um, do engage at a weekly level. Folks are able to to call in and participate um, if they're a member of CAHU. And then um, our website, of course, has a number of wonderful resources. We create talking points that you can give to your clients if they you know, say, I'm concerned about healthcare, but I don't really know the difference between single payer or Medicare for all. What is that? How will that impact me? How is it funded? Uh, we break all of that down for you. And um, something as simple as an infographic that you can share on your social media or something that's um, in greater detail, like providing you with links to the text of the bills if you care to read it for yourself. Um, and then, of course, Jim and I are um, attached to our cell phones even at the <laughs> present moment. And folks are always able to reach out and uh, let us know if they have questions or concerns or want to talk through anything in greater detail. Yeah, I would just add, yeah, add, you know, we take a very proactive role and we try to communicate in multiple facets. So we have obviously the website, we have our weekly legislative call. Um, some of the other areas that we've had some success, typically at the end of session, we'll have um, a webinar to kind of give the highlights of what happened, where we started, how we ended, and how Kahu influenced the outcomes. Um, a lot of in-person speaking, such as events like today or chapters. I've been to four chapters in the last 60 days to give a legislative update. 
also qualifies as a CE. We have in-person things like the bill review. We have our capital summit in May of each year, which is a great opportunity to go in-person, meet with your legislator and educate them on you know, basically whatever that topic is. And then we really focus on the role of the agent, what they do. We're not just there to sell. We really talk about all the different areas that we are working year round for them. And then we offer to be a resource for those legislators. Yeah. And we have several legislators that reach out to me and I can point them to anyone in the state. You know, you're in LA, I have several people in LA that you know that legislator's having an issue. We can point them in the direction to solve that. You mentioned why would someone want to use a Kahu agent or a Nahu agent? And I think there really is a differentiator. One, just like the realtor, you don't want to just go with anyone with a real estate license. You want a, someone that takes their profession to the most serious element. I think that's what the Kahu typical agent does. They're involved in an organization that's just there to advocate on the behalf of themselves and their clients and the consumer. We're educating them on a regular basis. We're informing them of legislative issues, and they typically have the highest level of professionalism in the industry. So we're strong supporters of it. Obviously, we're a little bit biased being yeah. members, but yeah. uh, the reality is I think there is a difference. And I would also add that um, you, you heard this year was a good example of how much legislation was impacted through the budget process. Mm -hmm. The budget becomes effective immediately as soon as it's signed. So it's really critical to make sure that you are represented by somebody who, when that law changes and there's an individual mandate that comes on board that previously didn't exist at the state level, you need someone who can communicate that to you quickly and effectively and who's in the know um, as this evolves because it can move very quickly. And these are high dollar um, interests to both the, the agent community, but more importantly, to the consumers they're representing. And we want to make sure that they're aware of these changes that are coming at them um, rapidly. Great. Well, I know you guys have to get going. So thank you very, very much. I really do appreciate this. And I also want to thank you for all of your help and support in the past and probably in the future. I'll be thanking you in advance for um, all the times you've helped me with articles and commented for me and, and uh, provided some legislative perspectives. And I, and I very much appreciate that. So thank you. Well, it's our pleasure. You yeah. do a great service um, to this entire community. So thank, thank you for having us. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3, toll-free at 866-658-3835, or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.